Hi, and welcome to the IFHP Executive Podcast Series. I'm Chris Watney, CEO of the International Federation of Health Plans. In this series of podcasts, we're talking to senior executives in some of the world's leading health insurance businesses. We want to find out what are the big issues they're dealing with right now, how they're going about doing that, and what's coming down the track. And we also want to find out what makes them tick as leaders. In today's podcast, I'm with Dr. Mike Kropp, President and CEO of Independent Health, a not-for-profit health plan headquartered in Buffalo, New York. Dr. Kropp, welcome. Good morning, Chris. For anyone not familiar with Independent Health, I wonder if you could give us a 30-second overview of your business. We're, as you said, not-for-profit IPA network model health plan in Buffalo. Uh, We just turned 40 years old, and we're about 330,000 members at this point. 20% of our membership is Medicare Advantage, about 20% of our membership is Medicaid, and then the rest of our membership is commercial, and it's split relatively evenly between self-funded and fully insured. Well, look, I I guess we have to start with what's top of everyone's mind right now, and and that is how has Independent Health responded to the current COVID crisis, and and what are you doing specifically to keep your business healthy? You know, in many ways, uh, living in in Buffalo is a blessing, and some people would say it's a curse, but a year ago, February, we had a snowstorm that kind of caught us a little bit off guard, and uh, we didn't have our work-from-home capabilities as fully developed as we needed to. So we quickly invested in that and then did some testing over the course of the year so that when it became apparent that we were going to go into this shelter-in-place mode, uh, we quickly flipped the switch and had full capacity. So we didn't miss a beat in terms Wonderful. of our operations yeah. uh, when we went there on March the 16th. Yeah. And, you know, very early on, um, we said, what we have to do is we've got to protect our associates, and then we've got to protect our members, mm-hmm. and then protect our provider partners. Right. So with our associates, we went to work from home with these capabilities. And, you know, more than just having the technological capacity to do this, we very early on decided that this idea of social distancing was not quite right. And we wanted to twist it a little bit to distance socializing. And so we made some significant and deliberate investments in keeping people connected through their departments and through other initiatives, um, lots of fun things and other constructive things to just get people to think very deliberately about how to stay connected to each other, to their loved ones, and to you know others that were important in their lives. I, I've been amazed at how well the team has rallied around that concept and the wonderful ideas that have come out of that. You know, protecting our members, you know, making sure that early on, before any government mandates came down, waiving copays, treatment of COVID-related mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. conditions. And so that went into effect very early on. And then in the first week, what we noticed um, with our primary care providers is that you know, we'd had a payment model that was a blended uh, payment, value-based payment model, working very well, but it was a blend of prepayment for certain services that weren't covered in the old fee-for-service world, mm-hmm. but significant fee-for-service component to reward physicians for doing the right kind of services that make a difference in the health of our members. Those visits just evaporated, and these these primary care physicians, their cash flow just dried right up. So we quickly converted to pay our primary care physicians what they were getting in cash pre-COVID to keep them moving. 
Oh, really? Were you prepaying yeah. then? Or yeah, yeah, we prepaid. Yeah. We prepaid the equivalent of what they were netting on a monthly basis pre-COVID, and wow. and so that was obviously well received, um, you know, by the docs. Um, sure. We uh, only wish that more payers had done something similar. Yeah. It was really funny. Third week into our uh, new model of operating, we had our board meeting. And uh, one of our newest board members was my former chief medical officer who had retired a year ago, April. Okay. And he had spent the last 10 to 12 years of his career trying to get providers to adopt more telephonic care. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and at the board meeting, he said, 12 years of work that I couldn't do in two weeks, COVID <laughs> accomplished. <laughs> so, but, Yeah, uh, I think yeah. we're hearing, hearing that all around the world. So, so did you see some of your providers moving to telehealth and, and, and those kind oh, of platforms? Extraordinarily. Yeah. Uh, it, it was telehealth, video, you know, all of that uh, yeah. rapidly adopted yeah. and uh, loving it. You know, yeah, really loving it. Fantastic. Do you, yeah. do you think, how much of that do you think will last post the, the COVID crisis? Well, I think quite a bit will last. I, I think that you know one of the things that we're working on right now is um, we have a technology partner that we've been working with for a couple of years that uh, basically is a platform for managing members with diabetes to help them you know, get the 24-7 information they need. And they've been able to expand their capabilities to not only help manage patients with diabetes and hypertension, but now we're looking at their capabilities for doing remote monitoring. And, and looking at the remote monitoring of just some basic uh, parameters, pulse, pulse oximetry, blood sugar for those who are diabetic, mm-hmm. weight, and blood yeah. pressure. Yeah, yeah. And we think those five metrics with the, from relatively simple technology, it's going to help us um, continue to monitor those people who are at higher risk, who don't want to come out, but still need care. And sure. I think that's going to be a phenomenon that will continue to drive the remote type of care that we have seen picking up over the last few weeks. Yeah. So. Fabulous. Yep. Hey, um, um, I've, uh, I've also been reading about uh, the Community Leaders Response Fund. 20 or so local community leaders have joined forces to pledge their personal financial support in response to COVID-19. And you're yeah. personally leading that, the building of that fund. I think you've raised well, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Can you yep. tell me what's, what's driving that effort? What, what are you hoping to achieve? We probably have a higher rate of unemployment here as a result of COVID than exists in the country for a variety of reasons. Mm. You know, Buffalo has always been a community that has struggled since the steel industry left and probably the last of the sort of Rust Belt cities to turn around. And we have been turning around over the last seven to eight years, uh, but we're still a, a very poor community. Yeah. I mean, we're the third or fourth poorest large city in the United States. Right. But at the same time, we're an amazing community in terms of, you know, what people give and how they reach out. You know, we're known as the city of good neighbors and, mm. you know, these kinds of times really bring it out. So yeah. um, one of my friends is the head of one of the community foundations and they, along with some other foundations, came together to quickly assess, you know, which of the not-for-profits in the community do the best job of distributing resources to the needy and uh, pooled some money from these philanthropic foundations, but set up a, a committee to be able to continually evaluate where's the greatest need, where do monies need to go. Yeah. So I had a conversation with her and I said, you know what, those of us who are sitting you know, more comfortably than others, you know, have a responsibility. Yeah. And, and so you know, I wanna write a check myself 
you know, as a decent starter here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, add to what community effort has already been started. Yeah. And I think that there are others who are like me who feel the same sense of responsibility that recognize that we're going to get through this yeah. and, you know, you know, we're going to be okay. I mean, that, but there are a lot of people who are not. And we have, a, we have a civic responsibility to step up and help. And it's been pretty gratifying and remarkable to see the response. I'm sure. That's wonderful leadership. I'm, I'm, uh, I tip my hat to you. It's fantastic. Uh, stepping away from COVID maybe for a moment, um, Mike, what would you define as the biggest challenges facing leaders in our industry at the moment? You know, I think that I, I felt that this was a challenge for some time. And, and that is that the amount of information that is developed in healthcare is just astounding. And, and the ability to kind of take the information and have it make sense for individuals, both uh, providers and, and for consumers, patients, mm. is absolutely, absolutely critical. And, yeah. you know, I always felt that trust is the capital on which we trade in this industry. Yeah. You know, obviously, pharmacists have a high degree of trust. But I think primary care physicians also have a high degree of trust. Um, and making sure that, you know, we are able to help reinforce the trust that exists. And, you know, that was behind our taking a look at, the, at uh, a new care model when we started that nine years ago, is recognizing that primary care physicians were under tremendous pressures. And, you know, the financial models, at least in the United States, had them just struggling to keep their lights on in the office and to keep their head above water made so little sense. And, you know, those five and 10 minute visits did very little to restore trust. Mm. So, you know, we sat down with them to redesign care model and a payment model around that to help them be able to reconnect with their patients. And I still think that our ability to be able to build that bond and to support that relationship is absolutely critical. And, you know, I think this COVID epidemic and, you know, not to get overly political, the current administration has really challenged, you know, the environment in terms of who do you trust. Mm. And so our ability to kind of focus on that, maintain that real sense of urgency around the primary care physician relationship, and to make sure that as we get information and we build benefit models and we build design that our efforts align the interests of the member and the interests of the primary care provider as completely as possible. Yeah. So for me, that that trust is capital is the key challenge that we face. I I hear a lot um, of of talk about the relationship we have with secondary care. It's interesting to hear you talk about primary care. It's such an important Mm -hmm. um, aspect, particularly for the member, right? For the the, the patient. Um, it's, that's, that's very interesting. Um, you talked about the new care model, uh, nine years ago, um, mm-hmm. long, long been a promoter of the benefits of value-based care. I'm guessing that's the model yeah. you're talking about, you know, it's much it talked about by other plans around the world, but not everyone's got off to a great start transitioning to that model. Um, <laughs> kind of what's, what's the secret? <laughs> what can you share about what you've done? So the, the secret, you know, it starts with a mindset and the mindset is, Hey, you know, we're part of the system. And, and we're part of the solution, but we're part of the problem, too. Mm. So, you know, let's sit down uh, and bring in <clears throat> some of the other players and have a conversation about what's working and what's not working and see if we can understand what the root causes are 
and, and being willing to be vulnerable and just kind of start um, from ground zero and build something up. So, you know, we um, spent about a year in dialogue with largely primary care physicians, but some specialists too, to understand some of the challenges and problems that they were seeing and, and you know, recognize that we had a, a spin at capitation back in the late 90s. You know, it wasn't well designed. It, it, it didn't last for very long. Right. Um, and, you know, we've been on the fee-for-service platform for some time, but we started back in the late 90s to some simple steps to reward docs for doing better care. Mm. And, and so we began a journey then um, that was paying for quality. And for me, what was fascinating about the beginning of the journey was that we decided to focus on disease states that were common enough that could be seen often in physician practices so that if we collected data, it would be meaningful and actionable for them. Yeah. So we worked with adult practitioners for diabetes and pediatricians with, for asthma and said, hey, you know, let's talk about what the literature looks like, what excellence in care looks like. Yeah. They defined it for us. And we said, okay, great. Now, we'll take what you've defined, put it into a 10-point scale, six points related to outcomes, four related to process, and we're going to give you a scoring sheet. And we want you to go back, and we're going to pay you just for scoring your practice. We've got 15 patients with each condition in your practice. Yeah. Go score. They said, this is great. We're, we're, we're really, we know we're doing a great job. Average scores came back 4.2 out of 10. Wow. <laughs> but it was them taking yeah. a look at their yeah. own experience, not us coming yeah. and saying, mm. yeah, and, and sort of that's kind of the model that we've used as we started with that as sort of the fundamental um, foundational piece and then built it up from there. And we got okay. to a point where, you know, we were, we had worked with Don Berwick and the idealized design of the clinical office practice in the early two thousands and had primary care practices that were knocking the ball out of the park, you know, mm -hmm. for diabetes control and, and asthma control. And that's when we got to the point where they said, you know, we're working really hard. We're doing a great job, but this whole model doesn't work. And we said, yeah, and you know what? Your care of being patient-centered is working, but you have an ability to influence what's happening downstream if we have the right model. And so that year was spent in terms of kind of redesigning that payment model so that we would now pay for services that weren't covered under traditional fee-for-service. So um, more nurse educational visits, um, more nutrition visits, embedding pharmacists in the practices, embedding behavioral health specialists in the practices, and um, said, but, you know, we're not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater because we do want to pay fees for those services that we want to encourage. Hmm. So we created a new visit called an enhanced annual visit where we would capture information about the patient, the doc would share information about the patient, um, we would look at claims data from CMS or our claims and put together a profile and said, now when you sit down with the patient and spend an hour to an hour and a half and develop a plan of care, submit that plan of care and we will pay you the highest fee that you've ever gotten. Right. And so those kind of visits, the post-hospital follow-up visit, the enhanced annual visit, we said we're going to continue to pay fees for those 
because we want them to happen more often. Yeah. And then the, yeah. the third component was a case mix adjusted budget for each practice for total cost of care. And we're going to share with you what's happening downstream so you can actually have better information about how your specialists are treating your patients and foster different conversations between the primaries and the specialists about how that care should be more patient-centered and more right. coordinated. So you're really so empowering. Sorry, you're really empowering the gate. The, the, the primary care physician is the gatekeeper. As the gatekeeper yeah, and, and yeah. the coordinator and the trusted uh, source of information about yeah. how do I navigate the system? And now you know we're at that point where the COVID uh, has accelerated um, our ability to help them understand that a huge percentage of the population doesn't want to come into the office and see you for those simple things. They just want some simple information. And now this model has been built to be able to accommodate that. And so you guys are ready for the future. Great. So great, great learnings. Look, I mean, you talk about COVID again there. So um, it's been widely described as unprecedented. It truly is in in the scale. But what have you learned as a leader through the COVID crisis? Is there anything that uh, that you do differently next time, for example? Boy, uh, you know, you know, my, my mom is here um, with me. She, she um, early on, my mom actually got COVID. Okay, she's eighty nine. Yeah, and and, um, and amazingly enough, she survived. I, I, I there was a moment that I didn't think was going to happen. Okay. and at that moment, you know what I realized was what everybody was experiencing that loved ones are dying alone yeah with no closure no chance by and what a horrible horrible experience this is for you know the 80,000 plus people in the United States and I don't know quarter of a million or more worldwide that this has happened to and I think what this experience has has shown me is the importance of the human connection and, you know, the importance of, you know, taking advantage of the opportunity to just tell people how much you care about them yeah. and, and how much you think about them and, and to show it, you know, whether it's, you know, personally or, you know, through the community. But then I've also been blown away by the creativity and the innovation that's come out. I've got a friend whose um, son and, and, and some of his friends just graduating from college were very good coders, very tech oriented, created this uh, website called Six Feet Closer that enables people to um, nominate frontline folks for a thank you. And then enables people from around the world to just say thank you anonymously. Fantastic. And, uh, you know, to create gratitude. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, there's, for me, um, you know, I think about humility, vulnerability, and gratitude. <laughs> are three of the most important attributes that, that people can, can demonstrate. And I was just blown away by these young kids and what they did in short order to kind of create this worldwide network to build gratitude. Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, I am certain that, that we are shining the spotlight on kindness right now through yeah. this. And, and let's hope that, that that kind of persists because I think that's a wonderful attribute of the human, the human being. And if we can yeah. continue that and celebrate that, wonderful. Mike, yep. you've been very, very uh, kind giving us your thoughts today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, Chris, it's been a pleasure. I look forward to the time when we can be together in person. I'm sorry it wasn't this next week in Paris, but <laughs> that's <you> right. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get that soon. <laughs>